strong voices. We don't need to sugarcoat things, let's put it that way. We need to be real, we need to be honest. We're in trouble and the only way that we're going to get through this is by working together. We have to get serious about closing the gap and I don't think governments have been serious. We need the scientists to help us to reduce the emissions and we need to get communities and people out on country and learning about the environment and reconnecting with landscapes again, just the way Aboriginal people have done for thousands of years. communities have had the solutions to end this injustice for 30 years. The governments have chosen to not prioritise saving black lives. Enough is enough. Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Hello, good afternoon and welcome to Strong Voices. It's once again at two o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I'm Carl Dowling here with you once again on the show. Great to be back with you once again here for Strong Voices. Uh, we're, of course, coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here on Arana Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. We are on Aitken uh, FM in Alice Springs and Bantua and also, of course, coming to you via the Karma app and online at karma.com.au. Well, coming up on Strong Voices today, the Federal Court of Australia has found that Western Australia's Yungunai people uh, survived colonisation with their laws, culture, governance structures and connection to country intact, and they recently had their uh, native title rights recognised. Also, a newly established First Nations service unit pledges to reduce the rate of hearing loss in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children by 50% before 2029. Also, a little bit later in the program, we'll also be hearing from Kamas Philippe Perez, who'll be giving us a bit of a roundup for, uh, from some of the news from throughout the week. But first, uh, social media claims that the army had forced Aboriginal people in the remote Northern Territory communities at uh, Binjari and Rockhole to have COVID-19 injections have been strongly rejected by both Aboriginal leaders and a peak Northern Territory health body. The unsubstantiated claims, which were reported globally, have caused further stress to the community members, according to John Patterson, CEO of the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance NT. There's no argument, no argument anymore that the Defence Force are mistreating our mob or walking around with guns and other defence equipment. That's totally untrue, totally untrue, and I want to put that to bed. AMSANT and the Aboriginal leadership and our community control leaders applaud the input the support and the assistance that we're getting from the police, fire and emergency workers, the other non-government organisations that are providing uh, really important uh, support and assistance to those that are in need of it in those uh, lockdown communities and including the Australian Defence Force. I'm in contact with a very highly respected Indigenous female in uh, the Australian Defence Force that's um, overseeing the uh, deployment of North Force and other personnel into Catherine and into these communities. I'm in regular contact with her. She's assured me that they've undertaken extensive cultural preparations, awareness in readiness for their deployment. And the North Force guys, let's not forget, they're, they're predominantly, if not all of them, are Indigenous Territorians and, and from other parts of Northern Australia. They're prepared to go in there and, and work with our uh, countrymen and our communities in that Catherine region. They respect, they understand the Aboriginal protocols and cultural protocols that's required. So from our perspective, we have no concerns with all of those different organisations 
and personnel that are supporting our communities there currently uh, in, in the Catherine region. We condone messaging that's going on from non-Indigenous and Indigenous people. It's coming from overseas, the UK, the US and uh, other parts around the world. People are jumping on and I note that uh, it's an opportunity to go black shopping. I understand as a new uh, uh, reference of um, approaching and targeting the most vulnerable population in this country, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population, using them as a vehicle to peddle misinformation. We understand that there's Aboriginal people involved in some of this mes messaging as well, which is really disappointing. And what I want to say to all those people is that you're doing our communities no benefit no benefit. In actual fact, you're increasing the stress and trauma on our communities and our people because of your peddling of misinformation. Enormous stress and trauma. I've had a number of calls from countrymen. You know, my countrymen there in Catherine, I have a big mob of them, uh, that are saying that it's causing them stress and tr trauma. And that's why we're backing uh, the call from the traditional owners and, and other leader, community leaders in the Catherine region to call on those groups, call on those individuals to stop what you're doing. The other crisis right on our doorstep, housing, the overcrowding and the lack of housing for our communities. I want to bring to the attention of all levels of government is when the messaging goes out to them and say they must self-isolate, where are they going to self-isolate and quarantine when they're already living in houses and other dwellings with up to 20 to 30 people living in that same dwelling. So I'm calling on all levels of government to provide the appropriate leadership here and the, and the financial investment for a minimum 10-year remote regional housing program urgently. The current agreement, as I understand it, expires June 30 next year. We can't wait until, you know, May early June next year to start to think about negotiating a, a new remote regional housing program specifically for Aboriginal people. I mean, if we need to start now. We've got to get the appropriate political leadership with uh, governments making the appropriate investment so we can address this very serious matter that needs urgent attention. We applaud the Chief Minister's comments. We share those comments and we totally applaud him for uh, coming out publicly and making that known. Hence why we are calling on all those eligible Aboriginal Territorians to get vaccinated or consider getting vaccinated after they visit their local clinics or health centres and talk to their um, doctors and uh, clinicians. We want to get that vaccination rate up to the 90 to 95%, 100%. You know, we've, got a, we've actually got a couple of communities now that are very, very, if not, they might have ticked over in the last 24 hours to 100% at least first vaccination, and it'll be followed up by their second in, in the required uh, period, three weeks or whatever it is. But we've got uh, other communities that are double vaccinated up around about the 80, 85%, 90 90%, I think, one of those uh, communities in the Catherine region informed me just the other day. So I applaud the effort of our health clinicians, both in the Aboriginal community control sector and Territory Health people that are out there. They're putting in big efforts under some challenging environment, you know, the heat and all the rest of it that goes with it. We've got the wet season in the top end here now, so uh, that's causing a few um, road bumps as well. But overall, 
Uh, we're very pleased with the rollout of the vaccination rates throughout the Northern Territory. A bit slow in the Barclay there, but I understand traction is starting to be made. Um, I think what we need to say, and this Delta virus is a very, very fast, contagious, it goes like wildfire once it gets in the community and you can see what happened when it went into Robinson River and uh, Binjari and also the Catherine community, how quickly it spread there. So it's really, really important that we get the vaccination numbers up so that we can protect our elders. They're the holders of all those stories, all that culture that needs to be passed on to our future generations. So we need them protected. We need our communities protected. We need our children protected. So I encourage all Aboriginal Territorians that are eligible for the vaccination to seriously consider going and visiting your clinic and speaking with your doctors and uh, nurses, Aboriginal health workers. I want to put a big shout out there to our Aboriginal medical services uh, throughout the Catherine region, as you're aware. Uh, Sunrise, Whirly Well and Jang and the Catherine West Health Services provide a very important primary health care and other related health care services from the Queensland Northern Territory border and the Western Australia Northern Territory border. That catchment area is predominantly serviced by the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Sector. Obviously we had a, uh, as everybody's aware, the breakout there in Robinson River and Catherine from an earlier positive case that went undetected for a little while uh, until positive results were coming out and the water testing and, and other tests that were being undertaken, particularly in Catherine, which resulted in uh, a positive case in uh, Whirly Wollongong. And, uh, you know, as a result of it being a very close contact, it unfortunately had to um, lock down in excess of 30 clinicians or 30 staff that work at Whirly Wollongong. So they were really stretched and um, with the support and assistance from other um, uh, key Aboriginal organisations and health services in in the Catherine region, uh, AMSANT, uh, we rallied behind them to ensure that the appropriate support was uh, provided. To date, we've been reasonably successful in uh, controlling that uh, the wider spread, but look, there's more results, testing results to come back in, so let's not get too confident at this point in time. We've, we've got a fair way to go yet. That was the CEO of AMSANT, John Patterson, speaking there. We're going to head to a quick break here on Strong Voices, and when we come back, we'll be hearing about the First Nations Hearing Unit. You're listening to Strong Voices. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. A First Nations Services Unit has been newly established to better meet the hearing health needs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and their families. The new unit will bring together three programs that are currently run by a federal government statutory authority called Hearing Australia and will look to boost culturally appropriate services in regards to hearing health. The body has also pledged to reduce the rate of hearing loss in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children by 50% before 2029. Hearing Australia Aboriginal Community Engagement Officer Emma Sparrow spoke more to Carmas Perez about the new unit. So I am a mum of four and I'm living in Victoria on Gundajamara country. Unfortunately, my family is stolen generation, so I do not specifically know my ancestral traditional lands that I come from. Um, I am a hard of hearing mum, so I have had a lot of issues with middle ear infection myself throughout my life. And one of my beautiful children, unfortunately, was blessed with the very same middle ear issues that I have. And he will very soon be fitted with a hearing aid. Um, yeah, I'm very much 
a person who loves being all country. I love working in community. It's one of my favourite things to do. And I understand that uh, a lot of the what you live with encouraged you to be a part of the hearing assessment program early years. Can you talk to us about the journey that got you to become a community engagement officer? officer? So I previously worked in my local ACO for a number of years. I had worked alongside my elders on a community home support program. Being alongside my elders every day, we all had a lot of hearing loss issues. Mm. It was a very interesting environment to be in. And December last year, I took my son to a happy appointment and he had a middle ear infection at the time. For me, as a hard of hearing mum, having those issues too, I never thought that the issues that I have could have been inherited by my children. Um, seeing my son go through the hearing assessment program and getting his hearing checked and his ears checked for middle ear infection, it was really engaging for him and it was a very warming experience to see him go through the testing and he felt very comfortable, he felt very safe, especially that the hearing services were provided at his local ACO. Yeah, and it just, it went from there. I applied for a job, had an interview, got hired and it is one of the best experiences of my life, especially being able to address the middle ear issues that are going on within community. Maybe could you explain a little bit about what's involved in your role? So for me as a community engagement officer, we're on the ground, we are talking to community about ear health and how to recognise the signs of middle ear infection. We are the ones who are setting up the trips for clinicians to be able to go to clinics and facilitate the clinics. And we are also upskilling Aboriginal health workers in how to use some more specific diagnostic tools to be able to diagnose middle ear infection and look for that and also to be able to refer onto an ear health journey pathway. Um, we very recently have our First Nations Services Unit has recently brought out some health um, telehealth appointments. It's been a great addition to the Hearing Australia Services, providing greater flexibility to meet the needs of parents and carers, especially for those who have been affected by lockdowns or might live in very rural, remote areas where ear health access and ear health care is not so readily available. You talked about visiting communities and ensuring that uh, health practitioners also communicate with local uh, communities as well. Could you maybe talk to us a little bit about where you headed to or how far and wide travel you were able to do? I mean, obviously, pandemic times means that travel is limited, but I'd like to get the width and breadth of how far you travel. We are a nationwide wide team. Um, we work collaboratively with a lot of organisations across Australia and we are a completely free program to be able to go and work side along, alongside any community. Um, now I understand this First Nations Service Unit is the first of its kind and it's bringing together a number of programs from the federal government. Could you maybe drill down a little bit more into how it works? 
So the First Nations Services Unit brings together the delivery of Hearing Australia's three Australian government-funded programs for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, we have the Hearing Assessment Program, Early Ears, also known as HAPI. Um, we have the Community Services Obligations, which will commonly be known as CSO, um, and a component of the Hearing Services Program. And we also have the recently established Listen to Learn Program, which is due to roll out very shortly. Um, the unit, we collaborate with our partners to provide more effective coordination and culturally appropriate services to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Victoria, regardless of their age, location or hearing needs. The First Nations unit works with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peak bodies, ear health coordinators and other ear health stakeholders to address the high rates of ear disease and hearing loss in First Nations children and adults. Currently, Hearing Australia, we provide services to 285 communities and this number is continually growing. There's more than 70 people who work in the new team with the support of over 100 audiologists to deliver integrated services to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across the country. I was wondering if you could also talk to me about how telehealth is involved in the unit as well with the pandemic currently still going on I suppose telehealth is an integral part for the health service in general but could you maybe tell us the the benefits of telehealth specifically for um, trying to improve hearing health So telehealth is making it more accessible for a lot of families who are in remote communities. We are able to do some more verbal screening over the phone directly with families and also via video link, any means necessary that the family is able to access. And this way we can make sure that the kids who really need to be travelling for a further hearing assessment are the ones that are going and not putting a higher burden on some families that may need to travel six hours to go for an ear check. It's very easy to access this. Um, all you need to do is call Hearing Australia on 134 432 or visit hearing.com.au for more information about that as well. Do you think that the pandemic has changed how we look after our hearing health. Uh, are you are you seeing a much more take up of telehealth to improve that? Yes, I am. It's been a really good addition for services as well, especially ones where either beginning their clinics had been delayed and introducing more of the conversation as well to families. So in a lot of the telehealth appointments, they will take the time to also talk about signs of ear health with families as well in case any child situation changes while in lockdowns awaiting for the next clinic date. It's been a fantastic addition and the uptake's been really well established. You said earlier in this interview that the unit will also provide local training and support services in person as well as online to those who want to be involved in healthcare. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and how that training works? Yes, so we are specifically targeting and working with Aboriginal health workers as well as early childhood educators. Um, We will provide training on plumbing hats 
Um, that is basically a questionnaire for parents with a clinician that's really talking about a child's listening and yarning skills and how they're developing and interacting. Um, from this, an Aboriginal health worker is able or an early childhood educator is able to refer a child on for a full audiology assessment or straight into speech therapy. Um, we have some training that will be coming around SoundScouts, which is an app that children can have their hearing tested on. It's fantastic, especially when coming out the other side of COVID, a lot of people have a lot of social anxiety, so that also kind of fills in the gap in that aspect as well. Mm. We're able to work alongside educators to teach kids how to blow their noses and good cough etiquette, especially in the current climate. That's an added bonus. Mm. And, yeah, there's a lot of options. One thing I also uh, think is really great about this unit is that it is another step to trying to uh, reduce the rate of hearing loss in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. And Hearing Australia have actually made a commitment to uh, reduce that by half by 2029. Talk to us about how you think are the primary steps to be able to achieve that goal from a community engagement officer's perspective. For me comes down to beginning to educate our families on ear health and the signs. Um, even for me, growing up, ear health concerns were very prevalent in my family and it was something that really wasn't thought about. Um, I really struggled throughout my education. I loved singing when I was a teenager and I dropped my singing lessons because it was really hard. Um, I think one of the core foundations of our program moving forward is the education aspect. And the, one of the biggest things that I always say to anyone who listens to my story is every time you go to a GP, ask the GP to check your child's ears or an Aboriginal health worker or anyone who's qualified to do so. You being a parent of someone who is also hearing impaired has uh, obviously brought this issue home to you and it's very much an important issue to you. I can hear it. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you talk to other parents about your experiences and maybe even talk to us a little bit about your experiences of going on that journey of trying to get your children to live with hearing impairments and navigate life? Yeah, it's a very personal story, me communicating with community. I love sharing it. It's always the first step where community go, oh, well, you know, maybe I might have something that's wrong with my ears and it always starts a conversation for them to get checked and they feel a little bit more comfortable doing so. Having a hearing loss, it's it can be a little bit scary, but at the same time, it's not very scary. Um, my youngest son, he's got a lot of speech development um, issues. He's very behind in his speech at the current time, and he's almost three. He turns three in December. But getting your ears checked and finding out if there is any concerns, it can be addressed. There is amazing hearing aids on the market going to see a speech pathologist for young children who might have delays, 
when my son was first diagnosed with ongoing middle ear infections, I was the mum who was scared and I'd leave the appointment and I'd want to ask more questions. But on the next visit, any question that I had, the audiologist would answer them for me. And it was a really amazing experience to be so heavily supported through. Get your kids' ears checked at any chance you can. (laughs) Emma Sparrow, thank you very much for talking to us here at Karma. No worries. Thank you. That was Hearing Australia's Aboriginal Community Engagement Officer, Emma Sparrow, speaking there with Karma's Philippe Perez. We're going to head to a quick break here on Strong Voices and uh, stick around, though, because when we do come back, we'll be hearing about uh, the Yungunai people being granted uh, native title over land uh, northeast of Perth. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right. You're tuning into Strong Voices on Calm Radio this uh, Friday, the 26th of November. Well, nearly 130 Yungunai people living in poor and disadvantaged conditions on their country around uh, Mikathara in Western Australia have been granted native title over more than 30,000 square kilometres of land northeast of Perth. Frank Gaffney, an Irish-born lawyer now living in Perth who specialises in land settlements and cross-cultural negotiations, finalised a 25-year journey for the Yungunai people, which ended in the landmark ruling from the High Court earlier this month. The Yungunai are people who live in around Migathera and Kew. It's around uh, 21,000 square hectares. It's bordering the sea people and the desert people from the Western Desert Mob. Traditionally been a gold mining town uh, during the gold rush eras. Uh, There is not a lot of people living there. And the Yungunai people originally came through Western Desert Mob and then settled into uh, the area around Kew. And that happened mid-19th century, uh, 1850s, 1860s, though there was a few people before that, but en masse they came. So there's uh, basically uh, three apicals, uh, apical ancestors that, are, that came through, and uh, that was Annie Wilbur, uh, Dolly Ward, and Jimmy Wheelbarrow. And they are the apical ancestors for the Yogan and I group. There are around 340 Yogan and I are now native title holders over the age of 18, and they are spread around all around Australia. We have some in Brisbane, we have some in Port Lincoln in South Australia. There's a good few in Perth, uh, and there's around 120, 130 still living on country. I first became involved in the group, well, working with the group in early 2019. Their representative body left them. The representative body, uh, WIMAC at the time, had tried to convince the group to pursue a a certain path towards their determination. Uh, The group at the time, uh, as a a composer at the time, disagreed with it, and to their credit, tried a number of times. And then WIMAC uh, told the group that they couldn't represent them anymore. And uh, then the group came looking for another lawyer, and uh, they knocked on my door. And they told me what they wanted and and, and how they wanted to proceed. And we had a discussion and that started the ball rolling. The number one thing, in my opinion, and I've been working in Native Title now for 20 years plus, is relationships. So the first thing that I would do is just listen. I would go out on country, um, go to people's homes, listen to what they have to say. I don't mention anything about the law and I know people want to do it. They say, oh, you've got to do this. I said, no, can you just tell me your story? And uh, I spent probably three or four weeks just listening to people, uh, especially some of the senior elders in the area, as well as the younger people, of what it means to, for them to be young and I. And in a lot of cases, 
there wasn't that understanding of what it meant to be Yogan and I, what differentiated them from any other mob in the area. So as I was listening to the elders and then thinking about the process and, and how I could incorporate their story into the process. And, and that's the hardest part. Of it, is how do you get this through? So it's a long journey. It's, it's a really satisfying journey listening to it. And, you know, just over many cups of tea, sitting down in people's houses or out on the lawn and uh, just listening. And it is a time-intensive process. But it's like all deals or all cases. You've got to do your due diligence, as we call it. And in this case, in native title, because relationships and connection to country are fundamental to the native title process, or due diligence, or my due diligence, is listening to those stories and not actually saying what we need to do, just listening and then coming back, reflecting on what's been told to me, uh, and then coming up with a strategy to how to get the case back up and running and how do we address these issues. Uh, and that's, that's it. There was a lot of issues within the group, the intergroup issues that need to be addressed and, and how to address them. Uh, and my view is, is uh, a lot of times people try to um, ignore them or, or kick them down the road for another day. My view is, okay, let's listen and let's try to deal with them because I need to get instructions, I need to formulate or, or work with the group about how to put their corporations together and the corporations need to take account of uh, intergroup politics or dynamics and that's, that, that takes a long time. So that's why relationships are so important and spending the time to get to understand people and understand their story. The determination, what does it actually mean legally for the people? The determination is twofold. There is exclusive possession and non-exclusive possession. So the non-exclusive possession is where young and native title holders will have native title rights but will live and exercise those rights with the current landowners who are there, who are in the area, and that can be pastoralists or miners. And how that happens in reality, say for the pastoralists, is that we come together. Uh, the PBC will come with the pastoralists, and they come with a protocol about how they can access country. And normally, mainly for a safety reason, because the pastoralists do have obligations in, in ensuring that there's um, safe uh, occupational health and safety on the site. So. They, it's normally you give you know 24 or 48 hours notice and say we'd like to go camping out there, we'd like to go hunting or whatnot. Just giving the notice and that's how hopefully it will eventuate. And it's the same with mining. Again, it's a bit more difficult with mining because there can be blasting and there can be vehicles going around and things like that. But in my experience, it does happen. It just takes some time for people to sit down and come with a protocol. And then for the group to understand what the protocol is, you know, handing out these as the number of folks. If you want to go out in country, give them a call the day before and they'll go out. And it's normal, you know, when you have had a good rainfall and you wait two or three days and you want to go, it's okay, now I'll go hunting and the animals will be out. I'm going to give them a call. So people will know with the seasons that, yeah, they're going to come out now. So you, you start preparing for it. And that process will take time, um, but it, it will occur. And it's just a matter of educating people so they know the process to go through. So um, that is the non-exclusive. And then there is the exclusive possession. So the exclusive possession is that to the exclusion of all others, native title holders, the Ogunanae people, will be able to exercise their native title rights to the exclusion of all others on those lands. So around 20% of the claim area was exclusive and 80% was non-exclusive. We are going back for a second round. Some areas where, there, where we could have got non-exclusive, 
But after negotiating with the state, we felt that we can get additional evidence which would push it over the line to exclusive, and we're in the process of doing that. So come March next year, the anthropologists will go out with some of the guys out in country and to hopefully get more evidence to be able to support a claim for exclusive possession over those areas. And, and there are a couple of large stations which have now reverted back to uh, UCL on claimed crown land. And um, hopefully we'll have the evidence to make that exclusive. And if, we, if that evidence is found and the state agrees with it, I would say nearly 50% of the claim area will then become exclusive native title. Getting an understanding of time, a large number of people certainly agree that the connection to country in Australia is pretty unique. I do believe that for Aboriginal people do have the longest connection to country out of all people in all nations across the world, whether that's 50, 60 or 70,000 years. We're only here on this country for a millisecond when you look at it in the spectrum of things. And people's connection to country go back, I, I view it from, from a cultural and from the story's point of view, listening to how people talk about their stories, about their connection to country. I love learning about how different people connect to country. When I was uh, working up in the Kananara, I worked with the Mirwan Gajron people, and I had the privilege of going out on country during law ceremony with some of the elder men and those young boys. And uh, I learned that process. It's an extremely intellectual way of dealing with it, even from a Western point of view. It's an oral history, and, and most histories are oral histories. You know, the written word didn't come in until around the 16th, 17th century. So there's an oral history process there, and the process of dissemination amongst mobs, whether it is the Ognune or the Mirwan Gajarang or the Injibani or the Nolama people in, in, in the Pilbara, it's a very similar process. And people will be surprised at how similar cultures are across the world and how they transmit that knowledge. And it is a great way of doing it. So I could imagine, you know, if we bought an elder from Kananara or Alice Springs or, or Megathera and brought them over to Canada or to Norway to meet some of the indigenous people there, they would find there's a lot of similarities in, in how they communicate their stories and their connection to country. The Ugnanay claim was originally filed in 1996, and it is an accumulation of around four or five claims in the air, so they came together. And then through a period, it, it didn't really get kicked off till around 2013, when the anthropologists went out and started doing connection material. Um, and that delay process was actually, which, which was a conscious process, which the courts and if you want to say the native title system, started prioritising cases. And unfortunately, this case, you know, was put on the back burner for many years. And when the anthropologists started going out in country, you've had 16 years there where there's been very little activity. And uh, people can get frustrated, people pass away. And so that's the first backward step rather than a forward step. That was a backward step because it took such a long time for people's stories to be gathered and the connection material to be put down in a form of evidence to be presented to the to the court uh, or to the state first, I should say. And Megatheri, there is a divide in the town, unfortunately. There is a, a view expressed by many non-Indigenous people, which, you know, unfortunately, it is their reality. Uh, it is not the reality, but it's their reality. And uh, we have to overcome those issues. And overcoming those issues can only occur, in my opinion, by sitting down and talking with them. Um, and by them, by people being exposed to the stories of people who, who are the custodians and at the time 
uh, the native title applicants and the claimants in the area listening to the stories and, and other people getting an understanding of their connection to country and how do you accommodate that. So that process is frustrating, but it does take time, just like my learning process of understanding the stories and going out in country. Uh, the, the wider community needs to go through that too. And how do you facilitate that? So there was some opposition to it from miners and, and smaller miners and pastoralists. But through the process of having those discussions and sharing the information with them, it ended up being a consent determination and they all consented to it. Once the state agreed to it, then um, and all the other respondent parties fell into line. So, But it is a long process. I mean, native title is a long process. It's, it's not like going to court for a commercial matter or an, an ordinary commercial matter. It does take time. And the reason for that time is because of the number of parties, the various institutions that are involved, but probably mostly in terms of developing the relationships and, and getting the, the confidence of those who have the evidence to give their story. That was Perth-based lawyer Franklin Gaffney, who acted for the Yungunai people. You're tuning in to Strong Voices. It's uh, 47 minutes past two o'clock. Uh, shortly, we'll be hearing from uh, Karma's Philippe Perez, who'll be giving us a bit of a roundup of some of the news stories from throughout the week. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, you're listening to Strong Voices on Cam Radio this uh, Friday afternoon. I'm happy to say I'm joined in the studio by Carmen's uh, Philippe Rose. Good afternoon, Philippe. Where are Carl? How are you going? I'm good. It's, of course, been uh, another busy week in terms of news. Uh, Indeed. COVID in the Northern Territory, Philippe, has been looking so far. We had an update from uh, Natasha Files earlier today. That's right. So... Uh all this week, except for today, Chief Minister Michael Gunner has fronted up the microphones and addressed the media to give up, uh, updates on the Catherine Robinson River COVID cluster, currently, which is standing at 52 cases. Uh, pretty much all of them are in Howard Springs, in the quarantine facility there at the moment, and it looks like health authorities are cautiously optimistic of uh, transferring Catherine from a lockdown situation to a lockout. So for those who may remember the previous situation we had when we had a, a COVID outbreak earlier in the month with Catherine and Darwin, uh, this lockout means that people will be able to go out and do their daily life, but they weren't weren't able to leave the city that they were in. Um, so there's indications that this may go on for another week or so in terms of those restrictions. And just in regards to that, sorry, was that, is that for particularly people who are double dose vaccinated? Correct, yes. So those who are fully vaccinated can go on living their life. Um, there's some restrictions on you if you are either not vaccinated or have one dose. Uh, I, I won't go through all of them, but essentially if you are unvaccinated, you can only go out for five essential reasons. Yeah. Um, so yeah, today there was no new cases uh, announced uh, and there was uh, some evidence of positive wastewater in the bicentennial region of Catherine. Uh, but health authorities fear, believe that that is also weakening. But they're going to give themselves, uh, I, I believe, if I remember the press conference earlier this morning, uh, a day or so to be able to confirm whether you know restrictions can be eased. So we're not all fully out of the woods yet. The, the 
two-week cycle hasn't been completed yet and we need to figure out whether um, there's uh, going to be further cases within, particularly in the Binjari and the Rock Hole communities. I think those were the most concerning areas for health authorities, uh, particularly because there was a lot of mingling in between those communities. And, uh, well, this week we've had um, occasions where um, people had actually left the community without authority and walked yeah. to Catherine as well and was infectious in the community uh, as recently as two days ago. As, uh, so there's, uh, you know, there's moving parts to this story continually um, and from all angles, really, to be honest. Yeah, and I understand another good thing that we've seen sort of come through. I believe uh, we currently only have one person uh, currently in the hospital at the moment. Is yes, that that's correct. Yes, um, I believe there was one that was released yesterday, uh, and they are recovering uh, in quarantine still. But um, one person is only in hospital right now in Royal Darwin Hospital. Um, yeah, it, look, it's, it is looking optimistic at the moment. Uh, I suppose one of the things that we also should note, and we've talked about it on we've heard it on the program already this morning is uh, this afternoon is the um, spread of misinformation that's headed on out there and you would have heard John Patterson talk about rumours that have been spread about the Australian Defence Forces involvement in the rollout of, you know, supplies and food and things along those lines and there's a lot of people out there who are saying that they are being forcibly telling people to get vaccinated or pinning people to the ground and things along those lines. Not true. All untrue. It's all been debunked by both you know authorities on the ground there we've we've heard from John Patterson there we've we've also gotten statements from the local health services there saying that that's not happening everybody's cooperating working together um, and there is a lot of uh, concern that this misinformation actually will make situation worse and I, and I think I, I could be wrong here I think I remember seeing something on um, Senator Malandir McCarthy's page I think she was speaking with I think either a community member from Robson River or uh, Benjari as well I can't remember which one it was but uh, I believe they were also talking about it as well and giving some of their thoughts that's true yeah and I do remember seeing a video from Malandir McCarthy uh, where she was speaking to a member in Robinson River. Many people would know late last week that Malandiri McCarthy revealed that uh, one of the f- many first cases of this cluster were her own direct immediate family. So uh, this is obviously something personal for her that she's very much um, finding uh, is, I, I suppose, a challenge for a lot of her family members and something that she's experiencing directly. Um, and I suppose in a way she's used, well, not using it, I suppose that's not the right word. She, she's kind of using it as an example. Uh, yeah, no, I'm actually going to use that. She, she's using it as an example to try and get people to get vaccinated and protect your family, um, but also to highlight the issue of overcrowding, um, which we kind of touched on last week. Uh, you know, Binjari community also has overcrowding issues. Um, I did read that there was around about 20 people to a home in some instances, uh, but, um, yeah, there's there's a lot that we need to, that we need to look into. Um, I should also mention that um, booster shots have uh, come uh, through now, people are taking up their booster shots, and uh, Northern Territory Minister Natasha Files in her press conference earlier today kind of highlighted that um, there's been a good take up of 
the third booster shot. So for those who don't know, if you are over 18 in the Northern Territory, you are eligible to receive a booster shot at a uh, health vaccination clinic, NT Health Vaccination Clinic, a GP, respiratory clinic, pharmacy or an Aboriginal health clinic. Um, but you need to have had your second dose six months ago. So um, you, I, I believe that, you know, you'll be get, getting contacted you get you'll be contacted by someone from NT Health if you uh, are due for a for a third dose, I suppose. Um, and so, yeah, five thousand booster doses have been administered, um, and uh, up up until November the twenty fifth. So, I suppose that's a good start. Um, yeah. And for people, I guess, who are a bit, you know thinking about in terms of when they might have got it always you know it's, there's no problem to go and reach out to the the health service that you've yeah. been going to and touch base with them again if they have the particular dates written down of when you got your dose and when you might be eligible to get the next one as well that's that's true everyone's always up for your yarn and mm-hmm. if you need their more information then totally go for it i should also mention that um just as an update in terms of the vaccination rates, federal health data has us in the Northern Territory uh, at 75% fully dosed. Anti-health data says we're 86% fully health, uh, fully vaccinated rate. And again, highlights the issues between this discrepancy of the data. In remote areas, NT data says that uh, 81% of remote Territorians have had one dose of a COVID vaccine and 66% have been fully vaccinated as well. So it's and collectively for the remote? Yes, okay. correct. Outside of Alice Springs, uh, you know, small communities. Yeah. Um, so that's actually quite a significant uptake since this COVID outbreak has, has uh, come through. And in many ways... And I actually heard John Patterson talk about this recently, that once COVID is in community, it will alert people to, you know, know that they need to protect themselves. So, um, yeah, in a way, it, it's, it's up in our vaccination rates. Well, on that note, Philippe, thank you so much for joining us. No worries, Carl. Thank you very much. And thank you for tuning in to the show today. If you missed any of the stories or would like to listen back to uh, the show, you can head to the Calm website at karma.com. Again, keep an eye out on the latest in terms of the COVID info and you can give the anti-COVID hotline a call if you do have any questions. It's one 490 484